Hey guys, on today's podcast, I sit down with Robin Gobble. Now, I chose her for a couple reasons. She is a licensed clinical social worker, a psychotherapist in the realm of attachment, trauma, and adoption. She also trains other healers and helpers um, to do this work with kids. But I follow her on her Facebook page, which is Robin Gobble. LCSW, RPT, Attachment Trauma and Adoption. Um, I'll link to that in the show notes. But a lot of her posts have to do with this thought about being human-informed rather than trauma-informed and not making this big difference between how we raise our trauma kids, if that's what we want to say, or the kids that have been in foster care or adopted versus our bio kids. And... This was really interesting to me because as much as I loved the concept and I was like, yeah, I can get on with that theory. I was also like, wait a minute. Um, There are definite things that I train people that I say specifically, like maybe this works with your bio kid, but I'm going to tell you why it's not going to work with a kid who has endured trauma. So I really wanted to ask her some questions about this so I could really understand what human-informed is, how it's different from trauma-informed, and can I jump on this train of talking more about human-informed and simply how the human brain develops and how we should be nurturing each individual human brain rather than specifically trauma-informed and how we should be specifically addressing the brain that has endured trauma. So super exciting stuff. She's very helpful. I think that you will find that her answers are very insightful. And we didn't necessarily agree on everything, but that's what's so beautiful about this podcast is being able to have these discussions and explore things with like-minded individuals so that we can all gain a better understanding. I know that she taught me a lot. Um, And she has shifted my view about how I teach and how I might train on this topic. Again, she's re-solidified for me this idea of making sure every child is treated very individually and that you need to know the bar for each one of your children, the expectation you're holding for each one of your children regardless of their past and their history. All right, I'm not going to talk any further because the conversation speaks for itself, but you guys are in for a treat. Here we go. Hi, I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast, the show where we discuss all things related to the foster care system and early childhood trauma. From foster parents, trauma experts, former foster kids, and beyond, We'll take a deep dive into the complexities of the foster care crisis in an effort to better understand how to fix it. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. I've been following you on social media for a while. I want to just jump right in. So you could just tell everyone who you are and Uh how you got into the therapy work you do. Yeah, so I am a licensed clinical social worker, so I'm a psychotherapist, and um, since I um, went into practice 15 years ago, I've always worked with kids with complex trauma and their families, mostly exclusively, though, in the last 
five years, I started to do a lot more work with adults, um, oftentimes with similar histories as well. Yeah. So how did you get into serving this specific population? Well, uh, I always wanted to work with kids who had been um, really hurt. You know, now I would use the word complex trauma back, you know, 20 years ago. That's not the words we would have used, but that's always, I mean, since really since being in high school, um, like that's just where I've always been drawn professionally. So when I finished my master's in social work degree at age 24, I've always worked with kids with trauma histories. Um, and then, you know, just some interesting career things and kind of just a lot of who you meet and who you know really kind of catapulted me into the adoption world, okay. which I loved. I love working with adopted kids. I love working with adopted families. Um, I've really been involved in the adoptee community and really understanding, um, you know, the impact of adoption outside even complex trauma. So, you know, a, a heart and a passion that always was there. And then, you know, like a lot of us, some career things just sort of fell into place. Sure. Yeah. So over the years that you've worked in this industry, how yeah. have you learned about, because I know a lot of this stuff is rather new. Like we're starting to now really hear like trauma-informed all over the place and they're doing trauma trainings for police officer and trauma trainings for social workers, but we still meet social workers that aren't trauma-informed or don't know just yeah. the very basics. So how has yeah. that changed in your work over time? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think part of it for me has been a combination of luck and tenacity. Like I, Austin, Texas, where I lived for the past 15 years was a really great place to be a, a therapist. It's progressive, it's curious, um, you know, community members are interested in new information. Um, so there was a lot, I didn't feel alone in Austin, Texas in you know, being curious about trauma, um, being curious about attachment. It's grown. You know, when I first started you know, all those 15-ish years ago, there weren't certainly near as many people. And that was part of my objective when I was there was we've got to build this community stronger. But I didn't, it wasn't difficult to build a community like it is in some places in the country where there's, you know, just not as much resources or knowledge or information. Um, and uh, you know about the impact of traumas so i in a way i kind of got lucky uh to land in austin texas and then i've also been just really tenacious about always finding mentors who aligned with mm -hmm. what i wanted like i've always known what i wanted what i believed and i sought out those mentors and you know asked them to mentor me and, and almost always I you know got lucky and they said yes <laughs> yeah yeah oh, that's great and and good mentorship is is really priceless because absolutely I know that I when I first started working as a social worker I could have gone to so many different places I would have gone to anybody that was going to hire me in a recession and the yep. fact that I ended up where I did I'm just yeah. I know I'm so lucky because yeah. really I should have paid for that education more than even my you know, undergrad. Right. Our degrees. 
Yeah. yeah, I know. I know. So in 15 years of being a therapist, was the um, modality, was it basically face-to-face -face talk therapy? Um, what, what did you use? Was it family unit? Was it individual? Mm -hmm. I've always worked through the lens of family treatment when possible. Uh, so I, you know, had a pretty traditional outpatient practice of, uh, which is not ex what I necessarily think is the best, um, you know, way to do treatment with this population. But sometimes we just got to do what we have available to us. So I was a pretty traditional outpatient therapist and saw clients an hour a week. Um, almost always seeing kids and families together as a unit. I mean, that's my paradigm. And that's also the, the primary way I've been trained is to do parent-child dyadic therapy together. Okay. And yeah. with the parents, when the parents were with you, are you talking bio, foster, adoptive, or all of the above? Well, because of the practice that I had, I worked, I mean, I probably was always 75 to 80% adoptive families. So okay. I had kids and their adoptive parents in the office. Not, a, you know, not always. I worked with some biological families too, um, but almost exclusively was adoptive families. Okay. So you really had the opportunity to work on building attachment mm -hmm. yep. and going back through kind of that trauma and helping them get their developmental needs met and all of that. Yeah, if, if people wanted to work with me, they knew that that was what the kind of therapy that I was offering. And so that was something we would talk about right up front, you know, that I was, you know, an attachment-based therapist. I did lots of family work and family involvement so that the, the potential client could have the opportunity to choose, is this the kind of therapy that I want? And how long did the typical family stay with you? Ooh, I mean, that just varies so much. Um, kids with complex trauma typically need a lot of therapy. And so, um, you know, if I was really going to be able to do like a course of treatment from beginning to end, you know, it could be 18 months to three years or more even yeah. sometimes. Yeah. yeah the, the therapist that I absolutely loved and partnered with on most of my cases, I don't think that there was an end date that she was thinking of, you know, yeah. and, and I think the parents needed it as much. And a lot of her, her sessions were like kid alone, parents alone, all three together, or, mm. you know, so that it was like marriage therapy. It was everything, you know, yeah. because it was, it was a lot. Yeah. Well, without a doubt, you know, I, you know, these families were struggling so intensely and we're getting so much relief out of coming to therapy that I became, you know, a really important part of their support system, just even as a family. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, sometimes I'd see a kid in a family for a really long time. And sometimes I'd see a family for, you know, a year and a half and we discharge and then they'd come back a year or two later, which is very common when you work with kids in general, but then kids with trauma histories as they, as they go through new developmental milestones, it's really common to need, you know, kind of a booster shot of therapy. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Did you see um, many kids that, that were therapied out by the time they came to you? You know, like they already knew clinical language, they were overseeing therapists, because in my 
uh, line of work, like with the equine therapies, I know that that's one thing that's kind of nice is that it's an alternative where yeah. parents would come to me and be like, the last time we tried to go to a therapist, my daughter tried to jump out of the car. Yeah. So we need yep. to go to the barn. Yeah. Instead, because and don't mention the word like she's just yeah. horses. Yeah, yeah. No therapy words. Right. Yeah, definitely. Some of that, you know, when you become more of a kind of a, a specialist, you tend to get clients with, that are higher acuity. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't uncommon for me to see kids who had attempted a lot of previous therapy. Um, that said, as my career has gone on, I have really worked more and more with younger children. Mm. So not that younger kids don't get therapied out, but it just looks a little bit different when um, their experience in therapy is different than a teenager. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that they protest going to therapy looks different. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so I didn't have it quite as much, but I think that's mostly just because of my population. I just worked with younger kids. Yeah. Okay, yeah. great. Well, um, in your 15 years as a therapist, what have been, been your biggest learning experiences? Well, I would say probably like the thing that instantly jumps to mind for me is when I was introduced to the theory of interpersonal neurobiology, which is Dan Siegel's work. And then how that's progressed into kind of a bigger field that a lot of people are calling the relational neurosciences. Mm -hmm. And I have a like I have a really clear memory of where I was when I first like learned about who Dan Siegel was, and then went and got some of his audios and started just listening to things voraciously and and feeling so in alignment so that everything he was saying like oh like this is what i've been looking for this interpersonal neurobiology is not a clinical theory or a clinical modality specifically it's really more a theory of just being human mm. and it felt so um honoring it felt so um hopeful um and i think especially when working with kids with such significant complex trauma that other clinicians, especially, you know, 10-ish years ago would have really labeled reactive attachment disorder. There's so much, there's just so much going into what people thought about that diagnosis and thought about what the appropriate way to, to treat them clinically and the appropriate way to parent them was that often involved a lot of controlling and punitive and harsh tactics and, and, and really held this view of them as um, you know, almost that they kind of needed to be broken of mm. their controlling behavior and the manipulation. And, um, and that always felt awful to me. I never, that was never the way that I practiced, but it was always sort of there looming, um, especially with other colleagues. So really finding a theory that helped me understand like how the the relational and social brain develops and then what happens when it's does it's not doesn't have the opportunity to develop in optimal conditions or optimal environment um and that really 
I think set my career and my work and even just who I am as a person on a, on a very new path. So what did your work like look like before, like what principles were you working off of before that and how did it change? So I, I think in a way I wasn't entirely sure what principles I was working off of. You know, I had a lot of techniques and tools and I was trained in EMDR and I was trained in play therapy. You know, I was trained in a lot of these um, interventions. I was also a younger therapist. And so this is a pretty normal clinical trajectory too, to have a lot of tools and techniques, but not be exactly sure like yeah. why you're using them. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I landing on, again, what was beyond a clinical theory, it was a real theory of like human development mm -hmm. allowed me to feel so much more confident than in what I was doing in the room and, and the tools and techniques that I was doing and the treatment planning I was doing so that I didn't have to be so um, rigid with a specific training or a specific technique, right? Like I could use what I understood about how the social brain develops and how it heals, which then I think the primary shift for me is that it allowed, it allows you to be so much more present when yeah. you're with your clients, right? When you're not always thinking like, what do I do next? What's the next step? How do I fix this behavior? So I love how you just said, like, it gives you this foundation of like, rather than fixing. Yeah. Um, which is, which is one of my uh, biggest learning experiences as well. I remember uh -huh. my supervisor telling me once, like, listen, we don't give you a magic wand. <laughs> like what you do get to do is be in the yeah. thick of it with people and show yeah. them that like, I'm going to be in the thick of it with you. And that was actually really relieving to me because like the truth is there aren't answers possibly, or maybe right. you will be sitting across your kid in a prison visitation room. And what I'll do right. is help you handle that in a way that right. is non-shaming for him and okay for you and that you can live with that. But it's not right. like we're going to change exactly what life looks like because we'll, we'll inevitably be right. disappointed. So right. I love that. I love that. Now, so if you start to realize, okay, this is all developmental stuff that the kid missed out on and we need to go back and kind of heal these parts of the brain that missed out of developmental milestones, how do you deal with the parents that bring their own stuff? Like you, I'm sure you've had parents that are in there and yeah. they can't wrap their head around this trauma-informed lens as, yeah. as you can. Yeah. Well, the first thing I do is remember that the everything I know about the brain and that I'm applying to the children's brain applies directly to adult brains too. And so when adults come into the office and they're, um, you know, rigid or, you know, sometimes combative or, you know, verbally or, you know, un, um, not very open to new information really harsh and critical about their kid. What I know is that that's a person whose brain is also in a state of trauma. Mm. Um, and so 
I, that's my first step because that allows me to stay like non-defensive and in a place of compassion for them while still setting a boundary about like, this is how I work. And this is what I believe about kids and families. And so if you want to work with me, this is what part of that's going to look like mm-hmm. um, while staying, you know, as much as humanly possible and human too, and it happens to the best of us, sure. but as much as humanly possible, staying out of judgment, staying in compassion. And again, believing the same thing about them that I believe about their kids, that when their brain is, you know, when they're feeling regulated, when they're feeling connected, when they're feeling safe, you know, when they're not faced with kind of chronic chaos, chronic dysregulation in this chronic state of fight flight, they're going to open up and, you know, experience things the same way that I'm experiencing them. Like it's not going to be an argument anymore because it makes sense when you're not, when your brain's not flooded with fight flight, the things that I teach parents make sense to them. That totally Um, makes sense. Yeah. So what's your biggest advice? If you were like, I'm going to hand out this one piece of advice for all parents, what what would the one thing be? Whoa. Um, That as hard as it is, always, 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 and I'm a parent too, the number one thing we have to do when we're faced with a behavioral difficult, you know, a behavioral challenge with our kid is to pause and see what's happening for us. Because we can't, unless, and, and also I'll say parents, unless there's a legit emergency, like we need to call 911 emergency because things are actually dangerous. And sometimes that absolutely happens with these kids and with their families, that there's a very legit emergency. But if there is not a like an actual legit emergency happening right now, the most important thing always, always, always to do is to pause, breathe, connect with yourself because we'll never do anything with a kid who is, you know, in the total dysregulation if we just jump in and join their dysregulation. I love it. So one thing I wanted to ask you about was, can therapeutic parenting be overdone? And this is rooted in, so like I would give them a technique that was like, you know, label his feeling for him. Like tell him like, hey bud, like I know this is tough for you. And so then I would go back and the kid would be like throwing pepperoni at their face and they're like, this is tough for you. And like they were, it was just so um obvious that some boundaries and some structure was need to be put up but like the kid was completely dysregulated and it was like they they kept you know talking about you're running hot right now your energy is very high and I'm like oh "Oh, gosh and I was the one that told you to like label it and now we are like over labeling everything and it's triggering less than for trying (laughs) I know right well, so you're not describe that you're not describing therapeutic parenting. You're describing very permissive parenting. Okay. So, and I don't really even love to call it therapeutic parenting because I think it's just like human based parenting. Mm-hmm. Like everything we know now about how people work and how kids work and how regulation develops and the attachment cycle. I don't even necessarily think it's therapeutic or trauma informed. It just is. It just is. So, but you're also just you know most of us are either really good at the like nurture side of parenting. Um, We're really good at like 
welcoming our kids in when they're stressed and they need regulation and, oh, baby, how can I help you? Or we're better at structure and kind of pushing the baby bird out of the proverbial nest. Like almost all of us lean more one way or the other. And if we're just leaning a little bit more one way or the other, no problem. Things are going to be fine. Um, but some parents can really lean all to like nurture. And again, then that, that doesn't look therapeutic. That looks permissive mm. or they lean to structure. And then that ends up learning, you know, looking harsh and punitive because they don't have any other skills to kind of lean back on. But you're also describing a very common trajectory for parents who are trying new ways of parenting as if their pendulum swings really far the other way first, mm -hmm. you know? And so they like, you know, they get these new ideas and they need skills and they're like, okay, you know, I, I need to label feelings more. I need to be more empathic, more on the nurture side of things. And then all of a sudden, like all the structure like goes out the window <laughs> or the opposite happens, you know, really nurturing family gets good. You know, they go all the way, you know, to the structure side and they lose some of the nurture and so uh, what I learned over the years was time to prep families for that, but also kind of soothe myself that this is a process. It takes more than a week for a family to, you know, revamp how they're parenting. Um, and they are going to have like these major pendulum swings before kind of finding their middle ground that works in their family. Yeah, yeah. I, I've noticed that some of the most rewarding cases for me have been, you know, they're usually adoptive parents that are like, oh my gosh, I know this kid's trauma history. Like, I just want to, it's really difficult for me to tell him no, or right. to not just hold him or to, you know, right. separate from him or say like, mommy has to go now because like, yeah. oh my gosh, he's sitting there saying like, mommy, please don't leave. And then like, I feel like I'm abandoning him. And so I'm just going to, and I'm like, this is super, this isn't healthy for him right. to be so right. connected to you. Um, I don't want to use the word connected, but it's like overly attached to have this anxious attachment to you. Um, but in those times being able to show them like, we're going to have you separate from him and we're going to keep you connected by a piece of yarn or however we do keep you connected. But I'm right. going to show you that he can exist without right. you and show him he can exist and show you, you right. can exist. Right. But usually it comes from this place of like, I just don't want to add to anything that has already happened. So it comes from this place of like really trying to be the best parent and they've read all yeah. these like trauma informed perspectives, yeah. you know? Well, I really believe in my heart that all parents are trying to be their best parent possible with those tools that they have available. And some parents are more able to um, regulate through their child's dysregulation than others. Mm. For some parents, their child's dysregulation is too hard for them. And so they lower the bar of expectations for their kids too much. Um, and so working with those families to find the sweet spot of like, where's, where's the bar for your child's kind of discomfort that they can that they can tolerate because it doesn't do us any good to kind of like rip the proverbial rug out from underneath them either. Mm -hmm. Um, but we've got to be constantly kind of reassessing, um, 
not even just developmentally, but sometimes day to day or moment to moment, right? Like sometimes my, my kid has more capacity to tolerate stress than other days due to a whole lot of circumstances. Sure. And really learning your kid and, and being attuned to your kid to, to know, like, is this a situation that's uncomfortable to them, but they will be okay versus is this situation just too much for them? And my job right now is to, you know, protect them from that. Um, and, so, and just constantly reassessing that. Yeah, I like how you say that because when I've seen your stuff about mm -hmm. human informed versus mm -hmm. trauma informed, I've I've like, I'm like, okay, yeah, I get that. And then I'm like, oh, but like I do feel like there are things that I would do with my bio kid that mm -hmm. I might not do with a kid that has endured trauma because I just know, like, dude you're safe and you're connected and you have a secure attachment and like, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I, I hear what you're saying totally, but I also don't think it has to do with, you know, bio kid, trauma kid. It has to do with as a parent attuning to where their bar is, their mm. where their tolerance level is. And that kids with trauma histories have a much, much, much um, narrower, window of stress tolerance. So as a parent or a caregiver or a teacher, I absolutely want to take that into consideration, but the difference isn't necessarily the type of parenting technique, for example, that I would use. Um, the difference is where's my bar for my kids' behavior? Like, I'm not going to hit either of them, regardless mm -hmm. of whether they're a kid who's experienced trauma or not experienced trauma, right? That's for me, that's just, uh, that, that kind of falls into, that's not about being trauma informed. Mm -hmm. That's just about understanding how humans work. Mm -hmm. And when we hurt them, they work actually less well then sure. more well. And so it, it's, it's then comes down to, where is, where's the bar? Like, what can I expect from this kid and how much co-regulation do they need from me? That's almost always what it is. My 16 year old with a trauma history needs significantly more co-regulation from me than my 16 year old who doesn't have a trauma history. And so that looks like, maybe that looks like increased boundaries. Maybe that looks like lower expectations with regards to like chores um, you could look like a whole lot of different things, but to me, that's less about the specific, the specifics of their trauma and more about being attuned to what this individual needs and always believing that they're doing the very best that they can. I love that. I love yeah. that. And I'm learning more and more about how individualized yeah. um, everyone's treatment needs to be. And, and yeah. I really thought that I knew that. But then as I go out and I train um, people on this, whatever, I'm like, I feel like I'm actually learning that I'm like putting more of a blanket, like this is what trauma kids are. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, eh, I don't really love that. Yeah. And, yeah. and one example, which uh, plays in my head that I'm always like, hmm, I wonder what that's about is I have a, a cousin that was adopted. He was diagnosed reactive attachment disorder. and 
really what worked from him, for him and I feel like completely added to him being a successful member of society was military school and now mm -hmm. he's a marine and but like was not doing successful in a typical public school or whatever mm -hmm. and something about the structure of like listen I know exactly what makes me what gets me on the like you're doing good list like needing that clear yeah. structure was what he needed something that I would be like do not send that kid to military school you know what I mean like mm -hmm. I would be like oh my gosh like spend some time like rock that kid love that kid but like mm -hmm. he has a profound sense of purpose um being a marine today yeah um so that's just really interesting to me because that's I mean I don't know who knows maybe I'd had his parents had more tools in their toolbox and were able to go through this whole really therapeutic, like, you know, process with him. Yeah. It's impossible to know, but yeah. I do absolutely like some people for a wide variety of reasons do better in different kinds of settings than even like the, the, the structure that's afforded of a typical family mm -hmm. setting. Um, I, for me, the difference comes down to, you know, I think, 10 years ago, um, the therapeutic community, when they spoke about those kinds of children, spoke about them pretty harshly and pretty negatively. Um, where for me, it's just a, it's a, it's a paradigm shift of understanding that's what they need. Mm. Um, and you want to be careful, like not all military environments are certainly going to provide the level sure. of felt safety that kids with trauma histories need but certainly many can and i've also seen that like when we really really increase the structure but we're also what are we also doing we're increasing co-regulation we're increasing you know like all the rules all the never aloneness right like all the expectations like there's so much that's going into that that's increasing the structure increasing co-regulation increasing a sense of belonging and connection to the people that they're with like this shared sense of purpose mm -hmm. um so yeah there's all sorts of things that could go go into why that could be really helpful for for somebody depending on how the trauma had impacted their particular nervous system yeah it's so interesting and i'm just i love to continue learning and and yeah. to not i feel like I feel a big sense of responsibility if I'm going to speak on the yeah. matter at all to keep learning and and to yeah. not put some blanket statements out there that a, a kid or any human would be like that's not that's not me like you're not representing us well. Yeah, yeah, and you're here. We're hearing that you know uh, children who have grown into adults now and have their voice has power. They are they are saying you know they don't like being labeled trauma kids. They don't. You know, they don't like being pigeonholed into this being the totality of their being. They want to be recognized as human beings with complex needs like like everyone else. Yeah, I yeah. just, I, I, a couple uh, weeks ago, I did an interview with a woman that had been adopted out of foster care and she was like, she's, you know, well, very, look, looks very well to do, like in a nice affluent uh, suburb of Atlanta. And she's like, when I say like I was adopted out of foster care, people are like, oh, like yeah. as soon as she says that, it like puts her in a different category. And they're like, yeah. oh, well, you, you must have had great parents because you obviously turned out, you know, like people don't know how to react to that. Right. 
So um, I know that you've transitioned to training professionals. Mm -hmm. What, what's your main messages for professionals? Like, what do you love to train on? Um, and what do you want them to know? I have a couple main things right now. One is I do a lot of training with therapists who work with kids on using like movements, rhythm, sensory play um, in the in the therapy room. So really bringing the body and mm -hmm. regulation through the body and also really listening to and being attuned to and aware of the body's story and the story that's being told to the body. Mm -hmm. um, so that's probably, that's my favorite Thing to teach that looks like a technique or a tool. Um, I really love to work with therapists um, and helpers, healers on understanding that really the most important thing that they do has absolutely nothing to do with a tool. And it has to do with um, really continuing to do their own really hard work so that their nervous system can be as like open and resonant and available. And then when they, when they do become triggered by clients, which is inevitable, it's not possible not to, you know, have stuff and kind of awoken in us with our clients that we can notice it, have compassion for ourselves and then think about, okay, what does that mean? Like, why did that happen? And what can I do with that information therapeutically? Um, so those are really my two main loves clinically right now. And then I also have been just trying to do more and more speaking and writing and building awareness on the autonomic nervous system and what we understand about like behaviors being such a teeny, teeny, tiny piece of what's happening for us neurobiologically. Yet it's what we are judging everybody on is their mm. behavior. And, you know, I just, I feel like if, the whole world could understand like Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory and the, how he um, asserts that connection's a biological imperative. Every single one of us is always, always, always looking for connection. So if I'm in a relationship with somebody who is not acting as though they're really very interested in connection, yeah. can I be curious about that instead of judgmental or character assassination. Um, and then depending on my role, if I'm a teacher or I'm a parent or I'm a coach, you know, what can I do knowing that connection is a biological imperative, what can I do to support this child so that they can kind of be their best selves um, instead of the love that. self that everybody's frustrated with. I love that because like one thing you said was you would tell um, helpers or people in mm -hmm. the space that the main thing they need to focus on is, is themselves and, mm -hmm. and doing their own work. And I've been there myself where I'm like, I'm supposed to be this like social worker. I'm supposed to be this person that like, uh -huh. in, in fact, one of my like top strengths when I did like the strengths find or whatever, uh -huh. and that is connection. And a lot of times I'll be like, I don't want to connect. Like, yeah, I am like head down to the money. Like don't want to talk to my neighbors. Like there's a lot of times when I feel like connections, the last thing I want when it's yeah. my first strength. So it's just funny that like you said, like, you know, no judgment when you notice there's somebody that doesn't want to connect and all that. And I would agree too that no judgment when you don't want to connect. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The self-compassion curious, like, 
you know, being connected out, especially for those of us who err more towards introversion, which is not myself, I tend, I'm actually quite extroverted, is not the same as um, uh, the feeling of connection not being safe. Mm. So there's a big difference between wanting to kind of retreat and regroup and just like, uh, you know, sensory, like separate, like I just need everybody to go away. Yeah. <laughs> than the feeling of connection isn't safe or it's dangerous and I'm behaving in a way that's actively pushing connection mm. away as opposed to what I heard you describe is, is, is maybe a little bit of just like fatigue from having you know, doing really hard jobs, but also making sure that part of who we connect with is ourselves, you know, and so no, it's a huge part. It's like the yes. number one part. And that's like, I work with a spiritual intuitive woman that always says like, as you work on your stuff, it frees everyone else to work on their stuff Yeah, and things fall into place. And really, yep. if everybody just did their own work, yep. we would all be able to connect, connect better. And it's, all an inside job like everything right. that you're having issues with externally even those things when I'm like oh people don't come out it's not like the people yeah. obviously yeah. it's all an in an inside job right um, although I will say for me it is an inside job and I have to do my own work but I'm called I, I want to do that work with somebody else mm. because of the way our brains are you know changing and um, uh, blossoming, we'll say, in connection with other people through the resonant circuitry with someone else. So I'm, again, I'm not saying, you know, it's time alone, you know, self-work that, that's done by ourselves. Is, there's a huge place for that. It's very important, but it's also important to have a, like a, a place where we have somebody who, again, is non-judgmental, accepting, boundaried, <laughs> Mm. and having you know a connected co-regulated relationship with another human both are really important yeah I get that and when we talk about kids you mm -hmm. know we're not going to be like my husband's a teacher you know and comes home with all sorts of stories but you know he's not going to be like it's an inside job Tommy you know yeah. Um, yeah, and yeah. be like if you could do your work you know yeah. so that yeah. would be more his responsibility to do his work if he was frustrated in that moment but you're right to yeah. offer that kid as a teacher yeah. to offer that kid safe connection. So how do we put connection and safety attachment first mm -hmm. while fostering independence? Like, mm -hmm. so if I was a teacher or a social worker or whatever, and I was like, okay, I need to know, I need to create a space that a kid feels safe. I need right. to know that they feel connected. They need to feel not judged. If right. you feel like you have, provided that like where do you how do you know the line of like now I'm going to encourage or push this kid to like step up to the plate or you know yeah well it's mostly trial and error that mm -hmm. um it's a lot if we pull it back into what it looks like to like parent a baby right like it's it's a lot of I'll take care of you I'll take care of you I'll take care of you I have no expectations for you at all no expectations for you at all as soon as you need me I'll be right there for you right and we do that for like ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and then kind of slowly over time in ways we don't really even notice the child is getting a little more quote-unquote independent or mm -hmm. 
it's okay for that child to fuss just a little bit longer while I finish putting this load of laundry in. Whereas when they were two months old, I would have like dropped what I was doing and run right to them. But I kind of intuitively know that my 14 month old is okay to fuss for a little bit while I finish this chore. And I'm like, hey baby, I'll be right there. Mama's coming, right? Mm -hmm. And so some of it is truly just kind of intuition and gut that mm -hmm. as you know a child long enough, and you've done the co-regulation and you've provided the felt safety that you have an intuitive sense of when is it time to start raising the bar? The other thing is to remember that just because I've created an environment that I think is safe doesn't mean the child's experiencing it that way. Mm -hmm. you know, that, that felt safety is a... Um, personal experience and a subjective experience. And just because a situation is safe doesn't mean that that person is feeling safe. Mm -hmm. So that's an important thing um, to always remember. And then I'll, I also frequently tell people who's, who's trying to give their kids more independence or trying to give them more responsibility or just trying to parent them a little bit more like their same age peers, but the kids are kind of cratering in a very in various different ways what i'll often say is it feels as though you really want your kid to be able to rise to this level of like responsibility and be closer to their same age peers but i feel like your kid is telling us like very loud and clear that they just can't mm. that they still need so much more co-regulation you know like if if i believe that kids do well when they can and this kid isn't doing well, there's a really good reason for that. Um, and, and a lot of that's knowing our own, like, way we swing on the pendulum. Like, do we tend to be more nurture or do we tend to be more structure? If we're somebody who leans more towards structure, I probably don't have to worry about accidentally giving a kid too much nurture. Because mm -hmm. I'm going to kind of lean that way anyway. Mm -hmm. If I'm kind of the opposite way, I want to be aware of that. Like, oh, I tend to be more on this nurture side. I've got to be really aware that I'm looking for cues for when this kid is ready to, you know, have the bar raised or tolerate more discomfort or be more stressed, you know, because we don't learn that we can, like stress resiliency is grown through being stressed. Mm -hmm. um, it just has to be a sweet spot of stress, right? We can't, we can't blow people's stress systems out of the water, then they just get hurt, mm -hmm. right? We have to, it's like training, the, the metaphor I'll often use is like, it's like training for a, a marathon, right? Like we have to incrementally increase the stress in a way that it's tolerated. If we increase it too much, you know, we're gonna go end up going back back to square one. That just takes a lot of intuition and a lot of attunement. And really the best way to do that is to be really regulated yourself as the adult. <laughs> so we just go back to yeah. that. Yeah. And like a willingness to be uncomfortable. I know there was quite a few times that I set an example for parents that would engage in a lot of negotiations with their kids. Like they would set a boundary and then it would be like five more minutes. And then they're like three. And then the kid's like, ah, and then mm -hmm. like, it's like this going and you're just like, you said five, have it be done. And when it's five right. and like for them, 
the, the, the visible discomfort of setting a limit and when their kid like is really throwing a fit now because we're right. actually the right. physical discomfort of like, I'm like, we're not, we're, we're ignoring, like we're looking away. Our body language is going to be somewhere else. Like he's throwing things now because he's upset that you're not engaging with him. And they want to just engage and be like, the reason why you're not getting it right now, like in right. given rationale and all this, and right. like, no, stop. This is you sending a boundary. This is you being right. as steady as a fence post, mm -hmm. which is really another way of being nurturing. Absolutely. Your kid knows exactly what they can expect. Yeah. So yeah, I've noticed that. I've noticed that as well as like, it takes a lot of discomfort in what feels like almost being not a good parent because mm -hmm. <laughs> you're not addressing what seems to be a need in that moment. Yeah, I mean, we kind of human nature want to just alleviate people's discomfort where the what's really needed. And sometimes that's totally needed. Sometimes what our kids need is for us to say like, whoa, that boundary was too high. And I, I made a mistake and I'm, I'm really lowering my expectation of you right now. But sometimes what all of us need is somebody to just be with us while we're really unhappy or really mm. uncomfortable or really angry about something like my kid has every right to be mad that he's not getting as much video game time as he wants right like yeah you can be mad about that that's totally fair that you're mad about that doesn't mean you're gonna get more mm -hmm. you should be mad and i'm not gonna judge you for being mad or be be mad that you're mad or tell you you should be grateful that you even got any screen time at all right like right, you exactly. get to be mad right so, you get to be yeah. mad and yeah. you get to rely on like, I have your best interest. I'm going yeah. to follow through with what I say. Yeah. And I'm going to give you space to have those emotions. Yeah. I love that. I, I love it. Okay. Um, I ask everybody that comes on this, uh -huh. but what are your ideas? If I were to say uh -huh. like, how do we end this foster care crisis? Because more and more kids are coming into care. Yeah. I know it's a big loaded question, but yeah. What well, are your thoughts? Right. Actually, what I think we need to do is our entire society and our entire culture needs to be moved move towards a human informed lens mm -hmm. in the way we understand people's behaviors and the way we take care of people in our in our country, in our culture, in a way that we support families who are hurting, in a way that we, you know, look at the disproportionality of kids coming into foster care, in a way that we look at how we have kids come into into foster care because um the people taking them into care sometimes simply have different values about how kids should be raised and that's not to um you know undervalue the reality that some kids are very 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 hurt in their homes and need to be taken into a safer place but there's also, I've done a lot of child welfare work. And I also know that um, sometimes safe is subjective. Mm. And sometimes we um, bring kids into care and then we don't do what we need to do to support their families to help them go home. Mm -hmm. And that if we can refocus our cultural beliefs and expectations, frankly, around people who are hurting, people who have mental illness, people who have substance abuse problems, people who, you know, live in poverty, um, and rallied around them as a, 
as a community. Um, I think we'd be looking at a real different situation with and with foster care right now. Absolutely, yeah. And through a lot of the people I've asked, it has come down to more supports. I didn't even realize how few supports there are for biological parents. It's kind yeah. of like, here's a case plan to get your kid back. And it's like, right. cool. Good well, luck. I, yeah, I don't have many of the tools to be able to do that. Or even like, very like access to care or transportation. Or well, exactly. I th again, that's a very um, kind of privileged way, right? Like the people who are holding the privilege are the ones making the rules for what is supposed to be done when some of these families truly don't have enough money to put gas in their car um, and they don't have access to public transit. Like there's, the, there's very real practical barriers that people in place of privilege don't really have any connection or awareness of. And we shouldn't be taking kids away from their families because of, you know, access to resources. Mm. Yeah. And, um, and there's a huge stigma, you know, once yeah. we we're once you have your kids taken away, like there's a whole bunch of judgment from the community that goes with that, you know, the yeah. community will, will more be like, and she lost her kids rather than like, right. Oh my gosh, we've got to help her get her kids back. Exactly. How do we rally around you? How do we support you? How do we deal with the fact that our judgment is actually all of our own fear? Mm. of how easy it is to lose your kids to the government mm. you know and so when I'm in a place of fear I, I move into judgment as opposed to compassion you know like how much is a person struggling in their life to have come to the point where they've lost their kids to the government that person needs you know love care and compassion and boundaries and expectations and the same I mean absolutely the same things you know but in a compassionate you know provided in a compassionate way it's hard. I love that. Yeah. So I know that you um, do offer um, yourself as a speaker or keynote. And so where can people find you um, and how can they connect with you? The easiest way to find me is just on my website, which is my last name, Gobel, G-O-B-B-E-L, counseling.com. For now, I'm in the middle of kind of rebranding, but that should work for a long time still. Um, and so all the information about, you know, um, accessing me as a consultant or a trainer or a speaker is all there. Do you have any social accounts? You can um, find me on Facebook and Instagram and I have a blog too. Okay. I yeah. will link those in the show notes. Great. Thanks. And thank you so much yeah. for coming on. It's been enlightening. I know so much for me and I think that you have not only great message for parents, but for everybody that works in this yeah. space. So yeah, thank you. Thank you, thank you for the work you're doing. Well, and thank you for the work you're doing too. So I know about the effort to, you know, go into producing this and um, a labor of love to get, you know, more information out to more people. So thank you. Thanks. Have a great rest of your week. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Guys, I totally enjoyed my conversation with Robin today. Here's three takeaways I took away from our conversation. The best thing that we can do when triggered by our kids is to stop and assess what's going on with ourselves. Working on ourselves will free us up to be more available for a child, whether it's your child or just one that you interact with. Takeaway two, rather than focus on parenting a trauma kid versus a biological kid, Focus on knowing your individual child's bar. 
what can you expect from them? What sends them over the edge? And where can you push them? And where do you have to accommodate them? These are pertinent questions to ask about any and all children. Takeaway three, do you tend to be a more structured or a more nurturing parent? Understand how you tend to be naturally and understand where you can stand to be more nurturing or more structured. Nurture tends to be more easy for people. So where we can build in more structures, boundaries, while we make space for any emotions that come up so our children can feel safe and connected is the important part. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode today. Tune in next week when we've got a new episode for you. We are actually interviewing Kanisha Anthony, who wrote the book Labeled, Ward of the State. She is not only a foster kid, but she is a social worker and she works in child advocacy. So check out her book and do some uh, homework or some pre-reading before we interview her. It's going to be a great interview. All right. See you guys next week.